is the um, <clears throat> the call for the third Sunday in Epiphany, which is of several themes, the season of Epiphany, but one is um, about bringing the gospel uh, to the Gentiles. So therefore, bringing the gospel to those who do not know it. Let us pray. Give us grace, O Lord, to answer readily the call of our Savior Jesus Christ and proclaim to all people the good news of his salvation, that we and all the whole world may perceive the glory of his marvelous works, who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. I'm just realizing I had a, a sticky with the sort of outline of what I want to do, and it's missing. So, disorganized religion. Um, well, uh, talking about, I think the title was something like the church as the only institution that exists for the benefit of its non-members, if anybody read the bulletin, which is a uh, a quote from William Temple, who is a previous Archbishop of Canterbury um, in the early half of the 20th century. uh, And I heard it first probably in seminary, and it's like one of those quotes that I've just taken for granted. And um, in preparation for this class, I thought, well, that's a kind of a catchy title for what I want to talk about. And so I was looking at, well, what was the source of William Temple saying that? And I swear I did the longest Google search and couldn't, I mean, just, it's one of those things that's like as commonly attributed to William Temple. You know, I mean, like I just, people cite it all the time. I even looked in books, on Google Books, and there was never, there'd be footnotes for everything else on the page, but not that quote. Um, so it's just like one of those, maybe he said it in passing and, um, it's, uh, well, anyway, it's a, probably a thought about things like, um, social justice, if I can uh, wager a guess, that's probably what he was talking about. But I don't want to talk to you about that as much as, um, I'm particularly concerned about hospitality for the outsider, um, reaching the stranger, evangelism for those who haven't heard the good news of Jesus Christ, um, and so more of what, how does the church face outward instead of being insular, um, things like that, for a couple reasons, primarily because as a ministerial identity, I view myself as an evangelist. I think we all should as Christians, but um, if I lean into one direction, it's certainly that. And yet, how do I, I'm always thinking about how do, how do I be a winsome evangelist that's not, who's not alienating everybody you know like as, as uh, Taylor was saying when we were walking in that often uh, people say well I'm not for organized religion and they're often cons- con- confusing the church and things that they don't like about the church with um, Jesus Christ and that's unfortunate that we can kind of raise up stumbling blocks um, and the secondary reason why I'm and this is very related concerned with this topic is that I'm the canon here who oversees our newcomers ministry um and that's a lot of you know as my title is canon for parish life and evangelism a lot of the thought about evangelism happens right there um in terms of people who are kind of new coming around um and how do we sort of reach out to them uh and integrate them not in the sense of we want you to become like us but in terms of church membership, uh, becoming a part of the body of Christ primarily, believing in the gospel.
So, uh, I, you know, I'm thinking about that a lot, especially right now as I look to the fall. Uh, we have a, we're changing our newcomers class to not be called newcomers class, but to be called the inquirers class. It was newcomers, then I changed the title to newcomers and inquirers as a sort of middle stage because I knew the final direction was to call it inquirers. And the reason for that is uh, we get some people who come to that class who say, well, heck, I've had people say, I've been, in, I've been at the Advent my whole life. I just was curious on the, t <laughs> the topic today. Uh, I, or someone who's been coming for three or four years and said, I've, I've never come to this class. Uh, I think it's about time. I'm ready to sort of dive deeper <laughs> into my commitment here at the Advent and maybe need a sort of a ground level theology or something. And we're often in competition with like some really great classes here on Sunday. So it's, it's um, you know, sometimes people say they keep wanting to come to the newcomers class, but, you know, Mark General Ed's teaching or something and Matt Schneider or Mark, you know, I mean, so. <laughs> uh, but so that's that's the thing. And, and so I'm, I'm looking ahead, but also just in terms of being here for two years now have had a lot of conversations about what is the Advent known for and how do we present ourselves and what's it like for somebody uh, coming here for the first time. So I have a, a, a handout and um, just take a look as I hand this around. By the way, if you get one with a sticky with my notes on it, love that back. <laughs> I swear I had my prayer book in here and everything. Maybe somebody stole it. If you see a prayer book with my name on it, I'd love that back too. So this is a, a lengthy passage. Um, I think I'm going to read it all. And, um, you know, we often, when people talk about Romans, they talk about the first eight chapters. There's like this whole other half. Um, and in Romans chapter 14, he talks about dietary restrictions, food. I mean, I, to a certain extent, it kind of relates to the, the Galatians passage that I preached from at 9 o'clock. Because there's confusion about, you know, how, how does one behave as a Christian now? Uh, and food was a big topic, of course, for those who were Jewish Christians because they had dietary restrictions that were a part of their, uh, their law system. And so now, you know, and then Peter has this dream about a picnic blanket coming down from the sky and God's like, eat the bacon. And um, but, you know, there's a, a sort of tug on either end. Um, and this has obviously created some friction between Christians. Now, I bring this in because I don't want to talk about food. I want to talk about other things. But here Paul is talking about something that's a stumbling block between groups of people. And so, you know, as you're reading this, think about well, what, what maybe was a stumbling block for you coming here? Or what is something that you know about that can uh, raise a hurdle, unfortunately, for your friends and family? Maybe they came around for a while and, and stopped. Or maybe it's not here. Maybe it's just the church in general, you know, organized religion, whatever that means. So this is all of Romans chapter 14. <clears throat> as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him but not to quarrel over opinions. By the way, as Paul, it's sort of counterintuitive when Paul talks about the weak. He's talking basically about vegetarians. When he's talking about the strong, he's talking about those who are like, give me the ribs. <laughs> it, it, you, would, you would probably think the other way around, so that's why I, I pointed out. One uh, person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. 
Let not the one who eats despise uh, the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. Since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to, to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Um, so he really, you know, really gets into this topic of this discussion or debate about um, food. And I found this passage helpful for me. As some of you know, there's like a rumor around here that I'm vegetarian. Um, so I'm the weak. Um, but I'm not a vegetarian for anything religious. Uh, I'm a vegetarian because I'm concerned about my health. And uh, so if for some reason I'm, for example, in the Dominican Republic, where I have been, and a woman makes a meal for the group I'm with and there's some chicken in it, I'll eat it uh, because it's not worth, in that context, me quibbling about such matters. I'm sure that having a little bit of chicken in the Dominican Republic on a Thursday is not going to hurt me, you know what I mean? Unless they, um, unless some of the tap water got in there. I'm more concerned about that. 
Um, but uh, there are some people I know who turn their dietary restrictions into a very fundamentalist kind of religion. Um, uh, I was a roommate with a, a, a vegetarian and her boyfriend was a vegan and they were not Christian. They broke up primarily because of their dietary disputes and they were both on the kind of extreme end of things, you know, already. I mean, he was really looking for a, a vegan and she was never going to scratch that itch, you know, so because she liked cheese. And and they just couldn't, you know, they couldn't reconcile their ir irreconcilable differences. Uh, but that was turning something like this into almost like a, a works righteousness, a salvation project. And so here we see that actually the, the Christian faith is folded into what some people are thinking about with food. Well, I don't want to dwell on food. Uh, I just want to think about what other things uh, could cause this to happen that unfortunately get in the way of somebody hearing this message about uh, what God has done in Jesus Christ. Um, often we're so caught up, especially in a place like the Episcopal Church, on secondary and I'll even say tertiary matters that we focus on uh, and make kind of an obligation. Um, and then the person who's the outsider sees that and thinks, therefore, it's a of primary concern. Um, and this happens everywhere, but in a place like the Episcopal Church where we're very concerned about things like ritual um, and the way th things are going in terms of uh, all in good order and whatnot, um, we can kind of get hung up uh, and sort of anal retentive about stuff. There are other things too. Um, and uh, so uh, we've been thinking a lot about that in terms of the Advent, you know, and, and reaching new people. And uh, Cameron Cole, our youth minister, has a summer internship program. Right now we have two summer interns. And usually, often is the case that one of the interns is somebody who's like, in their college students, they do youth ministry. They're either in college or a recent, like just graduated in May. And it turns out that usually it shakes out that one of them's kind of grown up in the Advent and the, another one is not. Somehow Cameron or somebody in the circle knows somebody and then they end up coming here for three months to help with the summer activity. And at the end of, uh, you know, the recent, or more recently at the end of this term, Cameron kind of does an exit interview with them to, to see about what their time was like. But uh, in addition to that, he also, over the course of year, the years, there are like 14 or 15 people who have participated in this program. He's in touch with them all. He shot them an email to do a sort of informal survey about their time here, where they're at now, and the question about whether or not they'd actually come to the Advent. And these are all people who worked here and who are young. So I'm going to talk a little bit a lot about young adults and their perception of us, but you can apply what young adults are thinking, I think, to uh, thoughts across the board. And this is not uh, the best research sample, you know, if you're going to do an actual study, but I think it sheds light on some things. So if you flip the page, here are um, some of the responses from people who worked here, loved their time here, loved the Advent and the message it preaches. Don't get me wrong, none of these people are uh, antagonistic to our church, but this is what they said. Uh, they have it uh, that the Advent has an overall feeling of inaccessibility, and these are some quotes from the survey. 
feels like going to a country club more than going to church. That's a place for rich people who wear nice clothes. You would only go there if you are a doctor or a lawyer, a high-paid professional, which nobody in their 20s is. Uh, and then in their description about the people at the Advent, uh, they here are some uh, some sort of uh, some analysis, I guess, not direct quotes from Cameron. The people don't make an attempt to speak to people my age, dress really nice, which is actually a big issue. Great place for families and people in their 30s and a and above, but they generally just want to talk to each other. I guess this is a direct quote. At my church, the families uh, make a specific effort to reach out to college kids and 20-somethings. And then in thoughts about the worship services themselves, especially in the morning, the music is the biggest issue. Liturgy, so worried that we're getting something wrong. I don't have any idea what's going on with the liturgy. The prayer books were my biggest issue couldn't focus on worshiping God at all, so busy flipping through, felt totally lost. Uh, the, the old words, I don't know what they are. I don't know the songs. For whatever reason, the choir and the organ are an impediment to emotionally connecting with God. Architecture contributes to the stuffiness. And then some final thoughts. Only one said they would go, and by the way, not all of them now live in Birmingham. Some do. Some live elsewhere. But only one said they would go to the Advent if they lived here, but in spite of the music and feel. And so that person probably doesn't live in Birmingham. All who lived he- who live here say they would go to Redeemer Church in Avondale or somewhere uh, similar. That would probably be the top place to attend. And a universal theme that they uh, wanted community and to be connected. Um, and uh, I, I'll just say, you know, I, wor- I hired our young adult and college minister, Brandon Bennett. I work with him as a supervisor, and he tells me a lot of similar things with the kind of t- college students and 20-somethings, early 30-somethings that he works with. Not entirely uh, everybody, but a good enough number to kind of pay attention, I think. And you could say, well, that's who we are. You know, if they don't like it, they can go to Redeemer. You know, they can wear jeans and have... No organ and choir, but music that uh, they can connect to. That's certainly, I grant you that. That's a response that that you could have, and I know some people will have. But we found that, uh, again, this isn't based on, like, hardcore data. Um, but th- through the past couple of years of thinking about this, past year and a half especially with Brandon here, we found that there are kind of three, especially when we're just talking about young adults. But, again, um, I think you can extrapolate from this analysis and apply it to youth and older adults. We found there are kind of like three categories of people, especially with youth. There are those who are kind of here. They grew up here. They've gone to college and they've come back. They love it. Their parents are here. They like coming. They might not be terribly involved unless we kind of um, reach out to them and start um, empowering them to do stuff. We've got no real big qualms with the Advent. Uh, They're kind of of the culture that's described. Um, We have those who are, um, I I don't know what to, I'll just say not here. (laughs) Uh, who are very faithful, 
maybe they grew up at the Advent and they've graduated college or come back or they're uh, from over the mountain uh, and didn't grow up the Advent, but they're here now or they've moved to Birmingham and they've got a very, um, they're kind of solid in terms of their uh, commitment to church and, uh, you know, despite the cultural whims, uh, but they're not feeling it. And so they do go to a place like uh, Redeemer or Mountain Brook Community Church. Um, maybe they go to Highlands. Often churches that theologically, like Redeemer, were pretty much on the same page. It's just that culturally, it's a, it feels like a very different place. And then over here, um, you have kind of unchurched folks for whatever reason. Uh, they're either or de-churched mostly in Birmingham we're kind of a burned over place most people grew up in the church and have been disaffected by fundamentalism or um, wishy-washy church that kind of doesn't really amount to much Uh, and so you know as they've grown up and had a mind for themselves they're like why bother I'd rather sleep in you know Um, we do have some folks in Birmingham who are totally what are being called not not n-u-n nuns like with habits but nuns Uh, these are people who are identifying with no particular religion at all and never really have had one i was a nun growing up i mean i grew up on the west coast so i have a friend who's a church planner in san francisco and they had a statistic that only four percent of people in the city of san francisco are uh, believing christians i mean that's where i grew up Birmingham's going there. Birmingham is heading there. No matter what you think, that will be Birmingham at the pace that we're at, unless something crazy changes, a massive revival of the Holy Spirit. Um, That's the direction we're heading in is what I knew on the West Coast 30 years ago. We're not even there yet to what I experienced in the San Francisco Bay Area in the 1980s. Um, More so, like I said, it's a burned over district here. People grew up in the church and have just sort of left. But we do have nuns who've come from elsewhere uh, in the United States who might say things like, I don't like organized religion, I'm spiritual but not religious, no thanks, I want to go get brunch, you know, Um, uh, or are actually identified as atheists. I find a lot of the atheists that I meet in Birmingham are usually people who grew up in the church and have uh, reacted against it. Very few people are kind of atheistic nuns who grew up in a a nothing sort of household. Um, and there's some overlap. It's I find that some of those folks, when they start going to church, are more attracted to um, these other places, not the Advent, for, for whatever reason. Although that's not entirely true. We do get some young adults, for example, who come to the 11 o'clock service often for a couple reasons. You can sleep in. And I think, you know, we look and smell like a church. Uh, you know, with the stately building on the corner of 6th and 20th. And if you, you go to the 11 o'clock, it's our kind of cathedral service, and you can kind of show up and be anonymous pretty easily. And, um, uh, you know, you can almost kind of spectate at the 9 o'clock in a way that you can't at the, the, I mean, the 11 o'clock. At the 9 o'clock, there's a greater sense of, um, of, of community and the children are there and whatnot. It's easy, more so at the 11, to kind of slip in anonymously and slip out real quickly and, and never talk to a soul. Does so the we, 5 o'clock service attract people who want to get redeemed? Yes, we do get that. So the 5 o'clock definitely are getting some fo- more folks like I'm describing who might be more attracted um, uh, to places, for example, like Redeemer and Mountain Brook Community Church. 
Um, and I'm the pastor of that service, if you didn't know. Uh, there, we, we run into a few hurdles, though. A lot of people associate church with morning. So no matter what we do in the evening, it's just kind of weird to them to, to come in the evening unless, like, they go to the lake. Most people we're talking about don't go to the lake. You know, they can't afford it. Um, but uh, we, we try to funnel young adults to the to 5 o'clock because we feel like there would be a greater sense of comfort. Um, but then, and then, so, uh, and then we have those who are here. There might be some of your children, um, people you know in their 20s and 30s, who are told that a lot of them live in like Crestline Park, first time homeowners, Mountain Brook Light, you know. Uh, these, again, these are just total massive generalizations, sort of my analysis that might be half true. Uh, I think there's some half truth at least to it. Uh, and it applies to other generations too, but the litmus is often with the young adults who especially um, manifests itself in ways that we are much more identifiable. Um, And this information that Cameron gathered is limited. There are other reasons too, to be sure. Um, Anyway, that's what I bring to you, not with any solution, but almost like as a big question mark. You know, what does this mean? um should we just you know we're, we are who we are you know take it or leave it um or for the sake of reaching more people um with the good news of jesus christ do we need to ask some questions to address what's happening here uh i don't know what are your thoughts yeah i was just gonna mention i think his comment about the five o'clock makes a lot of sense and then <clears throat> comment about the prayer book was, was kind of recently addressed yeah, this was before the, the the bulletin changed. That was a reason why we changed the bulletin was we were picking up on people getting lost. And then the only other thing, again, talking about very wide generalizations. Yeah. I mean, I've just kind of noted just over the course of recent years. I mean, it seems like what I would just call the average age of the clergy that are recruited. In, yeah, yeah. Maybe closer to the people that were giving you these comments than some of the ones that were replaced, and I don't know if that is... Yeah, what does that, what does that mean? Yeah. I mean, it's, it seems to me like that, you know, perhaps either by uh, coincidence or by design might be some effort to get, uh, you know, faces and, uh, you know, such in life that maybe are a little bit more identifiable in younger generations, maybe. Yeah, and maybe we're hearing it more than past clergy because they're more willing to tell us we're more in relationship with them. I don't know what. Is that what you're saying? Uh, um, and we, I think we'll probably get some more young adults coming around feeling comfortable simply due to the fact that the people up front are closer in age to them. But there are other things uh, that are involved with that equation, to be sure. Yeah, Farrell? I think this is a very important issue, and it's, it, it's very personal to me um, because my oldest child is my, my, is my 19-year-old daughter. Uh-huh. And um, in high school, she never wanted to get up. And I didn't honestly force her. I took my sons with me. And then interestingly, in college, when she's been back home, she's gotten up, put on nice clothes, and gone to the church where her um, grandparents go. And uh, Here in I, Birmingham? Or yeah, or in no? Birmingham. And I've been sort of curious about um, what would be attracting her to another church. Uh, as opposed to the church that she grew up in. And we're sitting, having lunch, and, and Dean Pearson is, is 
at the next table uh -huh. chatting with her, right? Uh -huh. He knows the dean. Yeah. And uh, so I, it's something that I want to explore more in my own house, but I think that um, I think we want to have a dynamism that attracts young people. Yeah. I don't think we want to end up as a church of just dinosaurs like me. You know what I mean? We want we want we want to be sharing that gospel with yeah. the next generation. Let me two, before I lose them. Two thoughts about that, and we can c continue to discuss. Um, the first is I've heard people say, "Well, it's not just dinosaurs, but it's kind of the typical thing when people are about thirty something and have kids, and then that's when they start feeling comfortable coming around to a, a place like us." In terms of the dynamism, the second thought completely uh, different. Um, I'm, I'm totally aware of that. How do we speak to the culture, though, without pandering or pretending to be somebody else? Um, how do we do this in a way that's not duplicitous? Uh, this is something I struggle with personally, probably more than most people, as the pastor to the 5 o'clock service, because that has a feel of contemporary church culture, though I've never called it that. People will call it that. You'll never hear, hear that in terms of my description of it, because I don't think what comes to mind when you say contemporary church is what is native to Anglicanism. It just is, it feels like putting a square peg in a round hole. But, you know, like, I'll wear this suit this morning, but I'm going to change before I go to the five o'clock, you know, and I think about that. Like, am I being duplicitous? Should I be wearing the same clothes? On what end of the spectrum do I skew to versus the other? Um, because I don't want to like alienate the flock at the five o'clock because nobody's wearing a suit. You know, I mean, I'd be that just uh, like if a newcomer came around at the five o'clock, that'd be weird to them a lot of times. Here, it's just it's just the, the normal um, sort of thing. Um, are you tracking with what I'm saying here? Um, uh, I, how do we get what you're talking about without sort of pandering and pretending to be somebody else? Uh, yeah, hey, Taylor. Um, my personal life, um, I was a cultural Episcopalian, you know, and then when I went to college, you know, I learned about things that weren't necessarily good. And but when I started having children, is when I started going back to church. Yeah. You know, because I felt like it was important, you know, to take my kids to church. And then we moved here, and I went to that and heard the gospel for the first time in my life. And you know, that was good for me. And, but the other thing, too, to keep in mind um, is this church is phenomenal in the sense that it's, you know, we say it all over and over. It's a downtown church that has 4,000 members or however many members other churches don't, uh -huh. you know, are struggling. Right. And so, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to ruin right. yeah. know, this by trying to do something else. So, you know, why don't we buy a church somewhere like the Redeemer? Yeah, you know, I mean, these are all viable options. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we've we've had conversations about buying built. We bought cram. I mean, we leased Cranmer House. But we've had conversations about buying a building to do a church plant over the mountain. For those reasons, yeah. But uh, you know, until so the, there's a movement behind that, we won't do it. But. Uh. After college, found that I was not being spiritually fed at that church. Mm -hmm. um, 
and moved to the Advent and found that, that the Advent did fill a need in me and um, feed me spiritually in the way that I needed to be. So I think that what we're doing feeds a lot of people and to try to accommodate the 20 year olds in that portion of people we need to do but not throw out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah that's a great phrase throwing out the baby with the bathwater but still uh, there are probably some things we could do to be more proactive about reaching some folks like who are described here um, in terms of hospitality measures or um, you know I often think a human relationship trumps all of this stuff you know and that's why I spend so much of my time having coffee and lunch and frankly beers and cocktails with people uh, because that's just like where a lot of the heart of my ministry ends up happening and uh, people will come around and I won't see them for six months they'll shop around other churches and they'll come back and I'll say why are you back and I think a lot of it had to do with our proactivity toward that individual and they knew like at least this is a place where um, I know I can be in relationship, but it was almost like in spite of <laughs> the cultural hang-ups or whatever, yeah. I think that's what you're finding um, living downtown like you are. And yeah. And part of your mission and ministry. Right. And I assume you're starting to really interact with a lot of the people there at Parkside. And just, mm-hmm. I mean, does it all fit in the same, I, I get the survey of the people that actually worked at Advent Center. Right, yeah. Oh yeah, and we do. Yeah, you'll. Yeah, we'll, have, we'll find that most, like demographically downtown, most people don't tend not to go to church. That they do, they're going to another one, um, and uh, of all different stripes. I did a data dump on our database of. I was curious because you can sort it by zip code. How many people are in our books who live in three five two zero three, which is right where we're standing? downtown and that includes kind of the area surrounded by the elevated roadways and the railroad so like city center and also the zip code I'm now living in right south of the railroad is 35233 the number of there were a lot of people came up in the data dump I think because they put their uh, corporate office down as their address and I could tell the difference there are three active members of our parish who I know who live in this zip code, uh, um, and uh, one's a couple, two of them are a couple, and one is a single person. And then um, there was one uh, person who's no longer going here down south of the railroad, and now my family's like four people. <laughs> but there, and there are actually two adventers who live in my building, so there are now six people all of a sudden who live in that zip code. Um, but uh, you know, I, I think that, yes, a lot of the people who I'm meeting downtown fall in the kind of unchurched, de church category, or they're tending to go, they're not here. I mean, I just told you the data. <laughs> and no amount of putting a church over the mountain is going to help that for them, frankly, because I mean, there's the inverse effect. Uh, a lot of people who live down here are kind of, uh, there's a reverse snobbery about going over the mountain. I only go over there to like go to Whole Foods, you know. I mean, like that's I really do come across that. Um, uh, and um, so anyway, well, and then just, let me just speak to the kind of like, well, everything's looking great, you know. What's the issue, you know? I mean, we've got four thousand members, a thousand people here on an average Sunday. Uh, Phil, yeah, yeah. I think what she said 
very insightful that it's impossible to be everything totally. to everybody. Okay, I mean, that's why Baskin Robbins had 31 different flavors. They, they were bankrupt. They, they weren't going to be successful with one <laughs> flavor, right? Yeah. But I think one of the things that's very powerful about this church and would speak to young people, if you could get them connected, is the way the gospel is preached here. The, the message of forgiveness and salvation and mm -hmm. not of judgment mm -hmm. is very powerful and speaks to, would speak to young people. And I don't know if Redeemer preaches the same way or these other, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. but, but I think that our theology is something that if we could ever get young people connected, mm -hmm. that that would speak to people at that time of their life just as it does people in our time of life yeah and well there's there's a there's a often a screen in front of that for some reason if that were true the five o'clock would be grown by leaps and bounds because right. that's the cultural place where a younger person might feel comfortable we're growing but it ain't by leaps and bounds um, but uh, Philip Jensen when he was in town the guy from Australia who's done a lot of church growth and planting and stuff like that you know, you can take it or leave what I'm about to say, but an observation about um, churches, uh, he said that churches tend to be in one of three places. They're either growing, uh, they're at a plateau, or they're uh, in a decline. Um, and uh, in his honest observation of the Advent, he said, we're right here. Uh, and if you look at the numbers, that's true. Um, since Paul's all, uh, you know, there was a larger number of people on the books with him. It dipped down immediately when he left because I think there was, uh, you know, I, I love the man. He's my mentor. You know, honest God, cult of personality. I mean, two, three hundred people left as soon as he uh, he left the place. Um, but the, it tends to be that we've hovered around upper 3,000, 4,000 people since the 90s. Uh, and so we're at a plateau. And so Philip's uh, assessment of that is it's it's easy to be in the plateau. And it's easy to be here and be like, things are going great. But if that keeps going, eventually you end up on a decline. Uh, and the only way to get out of the plateau is to think about what was happening when the church was, or what, what's the thing that causes new church growth? And his suggestion is actually church planting. He's like, stay here in numbers, but have some people cleave off and do it all over again and start new churches. And you've got to be okay with people leaving. Uh, and when they do, what happens is your numbers will dip down, but he's found it shoots right back up. People fill it in. One good example was they planted a new church, and for some reason, a bunch of the musicians left. It wasn't planned that way, but that's what happened. So there was great music at this new church, and their big church had a dip. And in this void where for a little while they're like, what, what are we going to do about the music? Some people who had been here all along stepped in and started doing the music, and turned out there were a bunch of professional musicians in the congregation that nobody knew about because there were a bunch of people up front doing the music, and they were like, I don't, I don't need to do it. Um, and so the, the church just went back to where it was. Um, so anyway, that's 
food for thought. Would love, you know, if you want to go get coffee, lunch, or beers, um, I'd love to talk to you about this more. Uh, you know, uh, I'm not the only person thinking about this, obviously, around here, but um, as it, in terms of the newcomers ministry inquirers class, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about this a lot, you know. Um, how do we uh, not be all things to all people because then we'll just we'll drown but how do we be more things to more people maybe is kind of uh, what the question is you know one of our greatest assets for the young people is our clergy I mean if you look at the age group of our clergy and how they preach you know if you could get young people perhaps you know don't make the you may not be successful at getting them into the door here as as step number one you may have to do some baby steps before you get there but if you can create an enhanced relationships between our outstanding young clergy and a population of young people who are looking to hear the word and looking for a church home then the next logical step is that they then want to go to where they have these relationships of, of people who they trust and are comfortable with who preach the word. Maybe. Final thought. I would say one of the things that really kept us in our early 20s close was small groups. Because I think at yeah. the same time, they're really influenced by their friends more than anything else. If you can really build a small group where you could have interaction with clergy, that helps us a whole lot. I think, you know, it's funny, we've all kind of gone in different directions, but we still, you know, relatively check in with the people that we were in small groups, even though we're in all different walks of life. Yeah. Well, uh, to be continued, I don't know when, but it will be. Thanks be to God.